Thank you, Michael. All right, safe. All right, Marty. I was telling you earlier before we came up here, this is very prescient that we're having this conversation because it's peak season of the high-velocity trash economy <laughs> with Christmas season being here. Uh, time preference. It is a concept that I wasn't really... Maybe I was aware of it, but I, I didn't really focus on it as much until I read the Bitcoin Standard and began having more conversations with you. I think one of the core ideas surrounding time preference is this concept of certainty and uncertainty over different time frames. What does certainty have to do in an individual's economic life with time preference? Yeah, I think this is really um, the way that Austrian economists explain it is that time preference comes from uncertainty about the future. The reason that you discount the future compared to the present is that the future is more uncertain than the present. So the present is now. If you're hungry now, you feel the hunger right now. If you're afraid of something right now, you feel it right now, it's real. If you're in danger now, the danger is here and it's real and you need to do everything to avoid that danger. But future danger is uncertain. Future uh, hunger is uncertain. Maybe you'll be in danger in the future, but maybe not. It's not as pressing when it's not certain. And the same applies for good things as well. So um, current enjoyment is now, is here, you feel it. Future enjoyment is uncertain. Who knows? You know, maybe something comes and ruins the good time that you're planning for the future. So you always have to discount the future because it's less certain than the present. And that's what creates time preference. It creates our uh, discounting of the future. It makes us value the present more. And this is true universally. Everybody values the present more. Nobody has a time preference of zero. It's impossible that you would value things 100 years from now similarly to how you would value them today. Because if you did, you wouldn't eat now. Why eat now when you can just eat in 100 years? Obviously, you prefer eating now to eating in 100 years. There is a preference there. But there's degrees to that preference, and it all comes down to uncertainty. And I think, really, the, um, you, you know, the Austrians spoke about this in a very theoretical way, but we really see it become vivid because of Bitcoin, because we see how it helps people reduce the uncertainty around the future. And I think if we look around the world, and this is you know, the work of Hans-Hermann Hoppe is excellent on this, it shows how when there's conflict, when there's um, political uncertainty, when there's higher taxes, everything that happens that you expect to ruin your life in the future increases your discounting of the future. The less certain the future becomes, the more you discount the future. The higher your time preference, the more you prefer the present. So we always have to prefer the present more than the future, but there's degrees to it. And your life conditions affect it. The more uncertain things are, the more you discount the future. So if you look at people who live in war zones, you know, they're willing to sacrifice things for the future because the future is enormously uncertain. So people will chop down a tree that could feed them for 10 years in order to stay warm when there's no alternative because, you know, what good is 10 years of fruit if you can't make it through the winter? So that's, that's really what having a, high, a higher time preference is. We see it happening during periods of conflict. We see it happening during periods of hyper, hyperinflation when you have no mechanism for saving and providing for the future. And the way that I like to think about it is really the process of human civilization is the opposite of that. It's increasing the certainty of the future, reducing uncertainty about the future, 
and therefore being able to plan better for the future and therefore discounting the present, discounting the future less and less, providing more and more for the future, thinking more and more long-term, and really what makes the process of civilization happen is when people reach a stage where they prioritize giving their children a life better than their own life. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, when you lower your time preference to the point where you start becoming more concerned about your children's life and your children's future, that's, that's really what creates the process of civilization. And then we see historically, you know, humanity advances through increasing the uh, certainty of the future, lowering our time preference, providing more for the future, and then we go crazy in periodic times and we start killing each other and we start raising our time preference and we start doing stupid shit and then we need to start all over again. And that's where we are today. That's where we are right now. <laughs> and so, I mean, you mentioned Bitcoin, you mentioned uh, economies that are going through hyperinflation have extremely high degrees of uncertainty, but between that hyperinflationary uncertainty and a sound money standard, how does a monetary system slowly but surely decay over time and sort of increase the certainty over the short to medium term and obviously most definitely in the long term as well. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, like, it, it's, it seems to be like the cycles of history revolve around this. So historically you see how people continue to move toward the hardest money around. Uh, and that's the topic of my first book, The Bitcoin Standard. So you see historically people are always moving toward the hardest money and that process isn't very smooth because all over the world people are using all kinds of different things as money and as they move to a harder money then you know moving to a harder money destroys the value of the previous easier money and then that is not a lot of fun if you happen to hold the easier money and most people I think throughout history most people have never thought about this consciously I think it's something that very few people understood and the vast majority of people just had it happen to them through the laws of supply and demand. You know, People don't quite understand why it is that seashells stopped being money, or why it is that silver stopped being money, or why salt stopped being money. It just did. And if you didn't figure out why that was the case, you know, likely your family went through several generations of getting wrecked, basically, by holding <laughs> on to... <laughs> Basically, shitcoin scams are, are played out over generations rather than over a weekend, which is what we can achieve with digital technology today. <laughs> um, and so you see, you see this process repeat over time, over and over and over again. For instance, I think a big part of the development of China and India was due to, uh, of the lack of development in China and India at the early 20th century was due to the fact that they were the last two countries that were on a silver standard at the end of the 19th century while the price of silver was crashing. So if you were on a, in a country that had gold standard, European countries, and you went to China, every year you could buy more Chinese things. You could buy more Chinese land, more Chinese resources, and the same is true for India. And I think that explains a lot about this uh, kind of, uh, um, the, the history of these places. And it also explains a lot about why, the, why gold has such a very, very important part of, um, the psyche of people there because they've learned the very hard way to value gold because uh, people who didn't value gold and stuck to silver for a, for a while in the end of the 19th century got ruined from it. So I think we see these cycles happen all the time and um, you know, hopefully Bitcoin is going to put an end to them all for good once and for all. Just have one money for everyone forever. Only 21 million. 
The end. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was going through your, your Twitter to do some research for this discussion. I, I stumbled across one of the historical events that you pointed out in the past that really highlights the uh, negative effects of devaluing the money and developing a high tie preference for society. And it was an example of Roman coinage and how much it changed over the course of Nero's rule over Rome. And when he first took, took over as emperor, he was a very skinny man on the coin. But by the time he was at the end of his reign, he was, he was fat and there was very little gold in the coinage. Yes. <laughs> and so what it got, obviously we're talking about uh, how money uh, affects time preference and allows people to save for the future. But when you don't have a good money, what are the type of negative externalities that has on systems outside of the monetary system? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the sort of thing that uh, initially people laugh about it, and, uh, but then you just can't unsee it, and then you just keep seeing it everywhere. And, like, it, it sounds ridiculous initially, but I really genuinely believe that time preference is like a control knob. Uh, sorry, the hardness of money is like a control knob for our time preference. And time preference is what determines pretty much all of our decisions in life. So... Um, in every single decision, and I discussed this in the Bitcoin standard, in every single decision in life, like your main opponent in life is your time preference, is your, uh, your ability to discount the future. This is what you're up against. You might think that you have enemies, but you don't. <laughs> you are up against you. That's your main enemy. Your enemies can affect you with one thing, but you are up there against yourself every morning, every day, every second, giving yourself the choice between a good, you know, something that helps you in the long run or something that hurts you in the long run and rewards you in the present. So if you have a high time preference, you know, that's going to win out in the long run. There's no way around it. And it's going, you know, you're going to continue to prioritize the future at the expense of the long run. Eventually, the long run that you had discounted heavily will arrive and you're going to arrive at a place where, you know, all of your consequences um, show up for you. And, you know, consequences are a very nasty thing usually. And if, on the other hand, you prioritize the future continuously with all of your decisions, obviously you, know, you could still get hit by a bus, but if you don't, then it's likely that this is going to pay off in the long run. So it's an enormously powerful um, force. You know, think about it in every single thing that you do. There's always take the easy way out, take the high time preference choice, make yourself happy today, and forget about tomorrow. And any day in your life, you could spend down all of your money, spend all of your savings, and have an amazing party. You know, no matter how much money you have, you could spend it all in one day. And you could have the most amazing day of your life, you know, if you spend all of your savings. But then, of course, the problem is the days that come after that. And, you know, you look at the stories of many uh, professional athletes. They get into their career, you know, they come from poverty. And if you ask them, you know, what are all the things that you ever want to buy? and you listed them on a piece of paper and you calculated what they wanted to buy, they could afford to buy it with like the first couple of years salary. And then they play for another 10, 15, 20 years as a professional, and then they retire, and then all of their salaries are gone. Because no matter how much money you earn, you can always spend it. If you have a high time preference, you'll always find a way to spend it. There's always a bigger house, bigger boat, bigger car, more cars, more watches, more jewelry. There's always a, a new thing to spend money on. So that will win out in the long run. On the other hand, if you have a low time preference, you know, you manage to keep your money, uh, keep your spending, that will also win out in the long run, most likely. 
So it's, I, I believe it's the most important factor in a person's life. And it's, it's really the most powerful thing that you, can, um, that you can do to help yourself is just start thinking about your decisions in terms of the short term and the long term. You could always go out and get drunk every night and enjoy yourself, but you know there's consequences the next morning. This is uh, one very simple example, but it reflects on all things, in all, in all your personal relationships, in all your friendships, um, in, your, in your marriage, there's always let's do the fun thing now and let's not worry about the consequences or let's think about the consequences later. So I think it's an enormously powerful force. And I genuinely believe that the hardness of the money that is available for people is like a control knob for that time preference that reflects across all aspects of life. And so if you have a hard money and you're able to trust with a certain degree of confidence that this is going to be there in the future, five years from now I can still count on this, well, those th that life that you have in five years from now is becoming slightly less uncertain. You know, you can put economic value today and ship it into a time machine that is called money that delivers that value for you five years from now. And five years from now, that value is available for you. So if it is available for you and you expect it to appreciate slightly, then it makes sense to start planning for what am I going to be doing in five years' time? Where am I going to be in five years' time? What am I doing today to make my life better in five years' time? And if you have that kind of mentality, you're going to start thinking about decisions, not just in the perspective of how things affect me today. And I think you know, the example of Nero is, is, is a pretty striking one, because um, when money is hard, you think of the future, and then the opposite is when money is easy, your psychology tends more and more toward the present. You know, who knows what's going to happen in five years' time? And I think, look at the example of places that have been through hyperinflation. Um, I, some of you might have experienced it. Some of you might yet experience it uh, in the coming future. Eventually, everybody, uh, everybody's, uh, everybody's in hyperinflation. Some are just doing it much faster than everywhere else. But you look at examples of what happens in hyperinflation, you know, people spend all of their money on the day that they get it. You know, they, you get your salary and you go to the supermarket the moment that you get it and you buy everything that you can and you store it and you buy and you live off non-perishables because if you wanted to wait until the end of the month, you'll buy about maybe half of what you could have bought at the beginning of the month. And so you consume and all of your life is just about securing the basic needs that you need today, tomorrow, and next week maximum. You can't think about things like, what am I going to be doing in five years' time? What am I going to be doing in 10 years' time? These become luxuries that you can't afford to indulge in. And I think that reflects on all sorts of things. You know, if you read um, Adam Ferguson's book, When Money Dies, on the Weimar Republic, you see how basically high time preference pervades everything. You know, the family falls apart because why would you invest in a family when you have no idea what's going to be the case in five years' time? So uh, friendships fall apart. People who are, you know, who are usually decent law-abiding people become um, criminal people because, you know, who cares about if I'm going to get caught doing a crime? I need to eat today. So you, all of the, all of the things that restrain your uh, worst side are essentially driven by low time preference. It's hope in the future that restrains the criminal inside you from carrying out crime. It's what restrains... Um, you from doing all kinds of different things. It's the idea that there's consequences to this. And when the future is uncertain, that just disappears. And I think um, food is another reflection of this. I don't think it's a coincidence that um, 
It was in the 1970s when the inflation really took off and the money was uh, completely separated from gold that you witness obesity take off. Sure, correlation is not always causation, but it's also not always not causation, and sometimes it is causation, and sometimes you have a very clear mechanism of how things happen. You see, um, on the one hand, there's the time preference aspect of it, where people begin to prioritize their present more and more, and that reflects in the kind of dietary decisions which we see with Emperor Nero. I think it's, it's, it's another data point where, you know, again, it becomes harder to keep saying correlation is not causation the more data points you show, you know? And I think there's something about it. You know, Nero was the first Roman emperor who began to debase the Roman uh, coinage, and by the time he died, um, he debased his body significantly as well, and he debased the coinage. I don't think that's a coincidence that those things happened together. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, as we sit here today, end of 2022, in the United States of America, you mentioned Adam Ferguson's When Money Dies. If you read that book, it is pretty scary reading what happened in the Weimar Republic and then looking out at what's happening, not only in America, but in the Western developed economies of the world. One section that has always stuck out to me in that book is, is the fact that towards the end of the Weimar Republic, right before hyperinflation got insane, uh, every 20-something, uh, every, every paper boy, they were all speculating in the stock market, and they all thought they were rich on paper. And I think this year, particularly in crypto markets with the altcoins, uh, after 2021, there was a lot of that type of thinking going around in the, the crypto space. There was a lot of uh, script kiddies that thought they had figured out how to hack uh, a get-rich-quick scheme and, and accumulate a lot of wealth, but they found out rather quickly that that, that wealth wasn't really anything at the end of the day. So uh, talking about parallels and Weimar and today, like, are, we, are we on the path to that? It certainly looks so. I think everybody who's read that book is absolutely struck by the parallels and how the parallels are just constantly increasing day over day. And the parallels are also not just true here. You know, you look at um, people who've been through Venezuelan hyperinflation, they describe very similar experiences. I've been through, I've seen Lebanese hyperinflation over the last few years. And it's, again, very similar experiences that you see across the board. It's truly very similar. And I think, yeah, this idea, you know, in 2021, there was a lot, of, um, a lot of triumphalist inflationist propaganda about the idea. You may remember, you know, 2020, the heyday of money printing, and um, the Keynesians were quite proud of themselves that, hey, we've solved the problem of all problems. You know, we can cure viruses by printing money, basically. We can just <laughs> cure diseases by telling people to stay home, and then and then, you know, uh, and, and, and they presented this as like a checkmate. You know, how would you, with a hard money, how would you cure a virus? How could you pay people to stay home by uh, printing money if you can't print money? Checkmate Bitcoiners, checkmate gold bugs. That was the kind of logic because you could just print money, give the money to people, and then everybody has money, and then nobody has to leave how their home because, you know, everybody just Ubers, uh, gets Uber Eats and then... Food just materializes out of nowhere because of money, and we defeat the virus. And this was the idea. And you know, now 
we saw that in 2020, and in 2021 we saw the major bubble of everything going up and all of these, you know, remember the, um, the, 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 the meme stocks and the meme coins and everything going up and it was the new economy and it was the new world and it was, everything was going to be different about it. And in fact, it turns out it, that there isn't anything that is different. It's just money is dying and people are losing the ability to save. And this is the thing. Keynesians have marketed this scam, the idea that you don't need to save as long as you can invest. So we don't need saving because, you know, you can just go and invest in the stock market and you'll beat inflation with investing in the stock market. So don't save your money. Um, you know, just have a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, and spend every day on CNBC um, getting brain damaged listening to uh, people telling you where to move your money from one place to the other, and then you'll beat inflation at the end of the year. But, you know, you look at the actual inflation in terms of um, the appreciation of, I looked, uh, you know, and there was a thread that I did on Twitter, you look at the uh, top 10 biggest cities in the U.S., and you look at the price of homes there over the last 10 years, and you see the average appreciation was 8.5% per year. Now, basically, there aren't any hedge fund managers that can beat 8.5% per year over 10 years after fees and taxes. And so the idea that you can have a job, be a productive human being, and still manage to beat that, I think is a silly fiction. And it's a fiction, you know, that is promoted by the people who happen to print the money for a very good reason, because it works very well for them. It doesn't work very well for you, but, you know, um, shouldn't be you. You should, be the, should have been born to people who get to print money. <laughs> it's the most important lesson of the fiat uh, system. Uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, ultimately, it's just... The only way around this is to sit there and speculate. And so you see more and more people want to get out of productive jobs. The notion that you're just going to learn a craft, get good at something, and make your money from it and focus on doing that job well doesn't work. It doesn't work for athletes. It doesn't work for dentists. It doesn't work for um, any job anymore because no matter how much money you earn, you're going to witness it get debased and devalued over time. And so you have no choice but to get in and try and win in these markets. And of course, the problem with these markets is that um, you know, the stories of the winners are far louder than the stories of the losers. This is really the key thing. So there's 21,000 altcoins. There's 21,000 digital currencies out there uh, that we know of uh, that coin market cap lists. 21,000 of them. The ones that have outperformed Bitcoin um, over any kind of appreciable period of time are probably less than one in a thousand, so less than 21 for sure. And the vast majority of them, 99.99% of them, have basically gone to zero. You know, anything beyond the 20, 20th one on coin market cap has gone to zero in Bitcoin terms, effectively. So the vast majority of money that has gone into the shitcoin industrial complex has gone to zero. The vast majority of people that have put their money in those things have gone to zero. But of course, the people who have lost their money in that don't like to talk about it. They can't afford to talk about it. They need to get to work. <laughs> Whereas the people who manage, you know, the one in a thousand who manages to hit the jackpot is out there on shitcoin Twitter every day telling you that, you know, don't listen to the Bitcoin maximalists. Um, buy the next meme shitcoin. And that's how you can secure your, your retirement. And so, of course, they get a much louder um, platform to talk to people because they are not working because they don't have to work and because they have money and they're out there promoting their shitcoin and promoting the next shitcoin. Of course, a big part of the shitcoin idea is that, you know, people go out there and tell you they've made money on shitcoins when they're making money off of you buying the shitcoin. And so 
everybody ends up having to speculate. Everybody ends up having to gamble in order to just make ends, in order to just keep the money that they've already earned. I think this is really the key issue. Like you've already earned your money being an engineer or a dentist or a, a cab driver. And now you need to go and be a degenerate gambler just in order to keep it, just to get to keep it. Like you have to earn your money twice just to keep it. And so eventually, if, you, if you've managed to find a way to get good at being a gambler, well, then you don't need to do your job anymore. You don't need to drive a cab or be a dentist. You know, if you manage to hit the jackpot and figure it out properly, how to hit it, you don't need to do it. So that's why you see like the vast majority of money in society is made by people in the financial industry. You know, people who are productive aren't making it essentially because you have to be in the financial industry because you have to be gambling. You know, even if you're making a good salary, in 10 years' time, you, you can't be highly productive forever. There's going to come a point in which your salary is not going to be very high. You don't want to be working a very highly productive job forever. And so you need to gamble. And that's, that's how it is. And that's, that's another major factor or another way in which fiat raises people's time preference. You can't save, so you need to get out there and listen to daily shitcoin uh, Twitter and figure out which shitcoin to speculate on today because it's going to moon next week. <laughs> it's not a good lifestyle. And it doesn't lead to good outcomes, too, because this begins to permeate throughout the economy and actually show up in meat space, and you see it in the quality of goods that, and services and yeah. housing that we interact with throughout the economy. And so how do you view when we get on a Bitcoin standard. That, like, I think something that has not been said explicitly throughout this conversation, but has been a big theme, is opportunity cost. Right? Like, how does uh, transitioning to a Bitcoin standard change uh, people's perspective of the opportunity cost of spending money today versus at some, or saving it for the future? And what does that mentality shift mean for the quality of goods, the quality of services, and the quality of life overall for humans? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating when you think of it this way. When you see this issue of hardness of money as a control knob for time preference, you can't unsee it. You know, you look at architecture. Why is it 19th century buildings were so much nicer than 20th century buildings? I mean, it's, 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 a really starking, it's a really starkly visible thing pretty much everywhere in the world. You walk around and all the ugly buildings are new. All the beautiful buildings are old. It's not just in the US, it's, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. Uh, because back in the 19th century, you had the ability to hold your money in something that would hold value into the future. And so if you were going to spend your money on a house, that house had better hold its value as well into the future. And so the houses were built to last. Now, when the money is disintegrating, essentially, you need to get rid of it. And so anything you, you'll buy and you can't be very picky about what you're going to be buying with your houses. And so you see throughout the 20th century, the quality of architecture continues to decline. And you look today, you know, um, the, the quality of buildings, you know, the houses basically look like cardboard boxes. I mean, they, the, 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 the amount of work that goes into them is done in a way in which they have a very short life expectancy. Like it, they're gonna need major renovation every couple of decades or maybe every decade even. Um, and in the fiat standard, I discussed this example of um, the, the Boston Library. There was the, the, um, the McKim building was built in 1895, and it's beautiful. It's one, still one of the most beautiful buildings in Boston. You know, tourists still go to visit it. And then the second building was built in 1971. I think it's called the Johnson Building. It's, it's in the fiat standard. 
It was built in 1971, and it looks horrible. It looks like a, a, a grave, basically. And it's in, it was built in 1971, and it required a renovation in 2010, I think. It required a major renovation that cost more than the McKim building, which was built in 1895, and hasn't been renovated, hasn't required major renovation, you know. It continues to operate even as technology advances, you know, they add electricity, new electricity boards to it, they add Wi-Fi to it, they add modern plumbing to it. It continues to work, it continues to look gorgeous because it was built under hard money with a little time preference. And then the modern stuff, it continues to fall apart and they continue to spend more and more money on it. But because when it was built in 1971, it was built not to last, it was built you know, to just get it out of the way. It was built with little concern for what's going to happen here in 40 years' time. Nobody told the engineer we want this to be still up and running and beautiful and functioning in 40 years' time. It clearly wasn't a part of their job because it required more money to be spent on renovation in 40 years' time than the McKim building did a hundred years, after a hundred years. So I think you see this reflected everywhere. And I think Perhaps one thing, I, I don't really have any kind of hard examples or hard data on this, but I think you see it perhaps reflected more in the US. Like in the US, it's cheaper to buy um, industrial goods. It's cheaper to buy plastic stuff from China here because, you know, the US prints money and gives it to China. And so there's, um, you know, they make stuff and the US just prints money. So it's very easy to buy cheap uh, Chinese things here. But it's actually very expensive to try and get decent services in, in the U.S. Like, to try and get a good haircut in the U.S. is extremely expensive. To try and get a good, um, you know, a, a, a worker to do something with their hand is enormously expensive. And there's not that good of a quality in workmanship, you know, like in, in barber shops or in those sort of things because I think it's because of the easy money, because you know, if you're a good barber shop, then you can just essentially securitize your shop, and then it doesn't really matter um, how good of a quality it is. You know? um, whereas if you lived in a country that doesn't have fiat privilege, where the currency is being destroyed, you need to wake up every morning and make sure you cut hair properly. Whereas here, you know, in the US, you, you cut hair properly for a couple of years, and then you can borrow against it, and then you got a credit line, and then you start speculating on stocks and bonds and real estate, and then, you know, who cares about the customers? Next. And you, I think that's why it's much more expensive to find, like, a decent barber here, because they, they, need, they have a very high opportunity cost. They could be out there gambling <laughs> with, um, with, with, with your uh, barber uh, money instead of just focusing on making, giving you a good haircut. And I think it's reflected in many, many things, which is why, like, if you travel abroad, you see this disconnect here. Yeah, if you want cheap plastic industrial things, it's a lot cheaper here. But if you want somebody to do something that requires their time and attention and focus, it's much more expensive. It's very hard to get that. It's very hard to get people to sort of uh, have the low time preference to invest in a craft and to spend decades working on it and focusing on it because the opportunity cost is just, you know, borrow against it, there's easy money, the banks are just desperate to lend out to anybody who has any kind of income, you know, let's just borrow against any income you get and then you can just keep rolling over the debt and it becomes far less pressing to focus on um, working properly, I think. So 
um, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that you see all of those things being reversed in Bitcoin world. You know, initially we were talking about uh, time preference and food. I don't think it's a coincidence and it's just a meme and it's just because, you know, a few of us like steak that we've managed to <laughs> meme this thing into Bitcoiners all over the world. I think that really does make sense that people, once they see that, oh, well, this is a way for me to save for the future that works, they start thinking about the future more and they suddenly junk food becomes less and less appealing. And I think you also see it in terms of the way that people work. Like a lot of Bitcoiners get into, uh, start liking their work, start focusing on their job because now you can buy Satoshis with your job. You know, whatever craft it is, at least you can, you know, you get paid in fiat, but you can convert it to Satoshis. And so whether, whatever job you do, suddenly it starts meaning more and more for you because it's, uh, it's a good way to buy the future. It's a good way to invest into the future. Yeah. Now that barber story really struck me because I had a I had a barber in Brooklyn who gave me pretty shitty haircuts and tried to, to try to show me shit coins while he was cutting. Hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the hot data that I didn't have. Now I have it. <laughs> but no, this permeates throughout. I mean, one of my we've talked about this on my show and your shows, like the university system, due to the fact that the universities know that students are going to get loans from the government because they can just print the money. Uh, they can jack their prices up and reduce the quality of their services because they know they have an easy money train coming their way. Yeah, yeah, you see it everywhere. And I think, yeah, universities are a great example of this. Again, who, who, you know, he, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And universities are paid by government. That's, that's the paymaster. They pay research grants, which constitute something like a third of universities' income roughly. And they pay tuition. They lend the money to students who pay tuition. The vast majority of students borrow in order to go to university. So the money really comes from the university. And so if a university wants to get money, it sh doesn't need to focus on the quality of the experience. It needs to focus on the people who lend the money to the students and the people who give them research grants. And that explains a lot. If you look around you in the universities today, um, it's, uh, the amount of useful knowledge that gets imparted continues to decline, and the amount of political garbage that gets taught continues to increase. And again, there's little incentive for, you know, focusing on your craft in whatever job you do. I remember I was a university professor. There's very little incentive to be a good teacher at a, at a university. There's very little incentive for, uh, for, for a university professor to, you know, put in any effort into making sure their students understand things, that the lectures are enjoyable. Some university professors do it, and usually it comes at the cost of their publications, and the publications is how you get university funding and how you get uh, research funding from the government, and so it ends up being a, um, a dead end. And my, the best professor at my university, um, he was very good at class, students loved him, because he was very good at class, he couldn't get into the city journals where you know you need to churn out papers in order to um, uh, get promoted. And he didn't get promoted. He got uh, kicked out of the university because he wasn't churning out papers. So you see this everywhere, you know, from the barber shop to Harvard Medical School. It's the same <laughs> corrupting influence of money essentially destroying the, uh, the destruction of money, destroying the economic incentives that people have for doing their jobs. Yeah. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's, exactly. It's everywhere. And so, I mean, obviously you've written books about this with the Bitcoin standard, the fiat standard, you're writing an economics textbook. Outside of people adopting Bitcoin and 
talking more about the Austrian school of economics and Austrian theory. And like, how do you think we shift uh, the narrative around time, or not even shift the narrative, create a narrative around time preference and really drive these ideas home to people who may not even be interested in Bitcoin or economics, but they're feeling the effects of this and just wondering like, what the hell is happening to the quality of my life? I mean, um, at the risk of turning everybody into an insufferable evangelical uh, preaching person on this issue. I mean, just, I guess, people are always complaining about things that relate to the money being broken. So just <laughs> tell them why. You know, when somebody tells you, damn, I got a shitty haircut, sit them down <laughs> and explain to them how it's all about time preference. And at times someone's complaining about their university, sit them down and explain to them why it's all because of the money being broken and the time preference being uh, high. Um, I'm probably not going to do wonders for your social life, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, I mean... <laughs> I mean, it might. It might. Some people like it, and then you might connect with some people, and then, you know, you alienate the right people as well. So... <laughs> well... Going back to like the lessons learned this year, particularly in shitcoin world, there were a lot of people who thought they had Bitcoin that didn't have Bitcoin at the end of the day because the exchanges they trusted that were holding their Bitcoin didn't, didn't actually have it. And a lot of individuals were making what I believe you and I would deem to be a high tide preference activity by giving their Bitcoin to a third party uh, so that they could get yield on their Bitcoin. Thinking, hey, I want my money to go to work. Why? have those people learned a hard lesson this year? What, like, I think we live in this fiat monetary world yeah. with the Fed and people expect things to, to act a certain way, but under a Bitcoin standard, there's no lender yeah. of last resort. Things do not compute in that way. Yeah, I think really ultimately the, the root cause of this is that people just don't understand the idea that money not having yield is a feature. It's not a bug. And that's because of fiat, you know, because of a century of watching your money decay essentially and lose its value in, in front of you, the money has to be working. And you know, the way that the fiat scam has been made palatable to people is that, no, it's fine, you can keep your money, but it'll also earn you a return, which is absurd. It doesn't happen, it can't happen. It's not happening, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's an illusion. It's, it's a mathematical illusion, it's a sleight of hand. Um, I mean, I like to say, you know, yield is the free cheese in the mousetrap. There's no such thing as money that makes yield. And there's no free cheese out there except in mousetraps. <laughs> so the idea that you could just have money and have it available for you while also being paid to give it to somebody else is impossible. It's just unworkable. Money itself does not yield more money. Like you look at any form of money, Isolate it in a lab and <laughs> look at it for a century. It won't reproduce. Like whether it's Bitcoin, there's no, there's no way of making more Satoshis out of your Satoshis. You know, just put them there. They, they're not going to grow. Like it doesn't happen. The number is not going to increase of Satoshis. Same is true for gold. Same is true for fiat money. Like it can't increase. And so if somebody is, the only way that it can be increased is if you exchange the money for a productive good that then yields something. So, simple example, sell the money uh, or ex use the money to buy a cow and then the cow makes milk and makes more cows. And so that could make a profit. But that means you no longer have the money. 
Okay, so you can't have the cow and the money. You have to choose. And if somebody tells you, you have the money and you're going to get the milk from the cow, you're going to end up with neither. <laughs> this is it. This is, there's no way to square that circle. There's no way to make it so that the money is available for you, but also the money has been used to buy the cow and the cow is making milk and it's making more cows. There's no way to do that because the person who owns the cow is not going to give it to you unless they get the money. So the, the, the way that central banks manage to sort of sell this delusion is by effectively pretending that, uh, well, the money, is going to, the money is going to make a yield because we're going to make it work, but it's out there, it's working, but at the same time, it's available for you. And as long as you know, we guarantee it, then it can do both things because not everybody's gonna come and ask for their cow at the same time, so that means we can make more cows. Doesn't work that way. There's a limited number of cows and you can't make more cows by printing more money. So, but fiat has just sold people on this idea that your money has to make a yield and the only way that the money doesn't lose value is, and the only way that you can accept the fact that your money is losing value is that it's okay because your money is yielding. Because in the fiat system, yes, we have inflation, but the inflation is giving us more cows. And so because of inflation, everybody can have more cows, and then we can have more milk, and we'll all make a return. So let us devalue your currency, and you'll make it back in yield. That's what it really comes down to, and that's why it doesn't work. And that's really why it always fails, and why it's all, it always backfires. And so I think, you know, Bitcoiners have gotten a lot of shit over the last few years because we don't believe in this kind of insane uh, financial engineering. But I think last year, this year, has been a uh, very strong validation of it. Essentially, all of the yield products in the um, crypto uh, industry are now yielding less than the US treasuries. So there is basically no reason to get into any of those things at all anymore. Um, and the only people still stuck in them are people who signed up for silly Ponzi schemes like Ethereum and they can't pull out, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, contractually you're required to stay and so you can't pull out because it's coded into it. Which is the only, the only real advantage that this thing has, that it's, it's a Ponzi where you can't even get out. So there, there is no way out of this. There's no way out of this idea that you can just make yield from nothing. There's no way to to make that magical cow that you can buy without money and it'll still give you real milk. It doesn't exist, it's a fictional cow. And it's just several cows and several people thinking that they own cows and it's really only just one cow. And you know, one day, they're all gonna be asking for that milk at the same time and the music is gonna stop. So I think um, it's, it's, it, it's something that works in the fiat system or people think that it works in the fiat system because they believe in the CPI. I mean, the way that this lie is allowed to work is that, well, look, you make the return, you know, you get the interest. It used to be that you made the interest on the saving account, then it became that you made the interest on uh, bonds. Now it's you make the interest on stocks. And uh, all right, you make more money than you lost because of inflation. All right. So people think that they have made it because, you know, CPI shows up as 3.4% and your stock portfolio made 5.2%, so it works out fine. However, you know, the house that you actually want to buy, or the cow that you actually want to buy, keeps getting more expensive than the 3.4% in the CPI. And that's because the CPI is 
heavily weighs the cheap plastic industrial stuff that is easy to scale, which, whose prices continu continuously decline, you know, uh, if your computer gets faster, the CPI goes down because computer speed is the factor that goes into this. So as the memory in your computer increases and as the speed of your computer increases, the price level in society is declining. And so the central bank needs to print more money to ensure that we don't get into deflation. So effectively, yeah, technological goods are getting cheaper, not because of inflation. They're getting cheaper because of technological innovation. Industrial goods are not getting much more expensive because we can scale those things and we keep getting more and more efficient at producing them. And we keep introducing new technology and new automating, automation techniques into making those things. And then all the real things that, you know, that are physical that can't be made easily, primarily food and healthy food, the nutrients and um, energy and things that require human attention, human focus, you know, um, haircuts and skilled work, all of these things continue to get astronomically more expensive. Real estate continues to get much more expensive than CPI. So you're not making a miracle uh, yield out of nothing by using inflation. You're just robbing some people to the benefit of other people. That's what it really comes down to. And the only way it works is because in the fiat system there's a lender of last resort which is constantly bailing out banks. It's not just in 2008 that they bailed them out when you know um, uh, everything blows up. It's the entire way that the monetary system functions is it's a constant bailout to banks because they get to borrow from the central bank at a lower interest rate. And so they're constantly getting bailed out effectively by getting cheaper and cheaper credit than everybody else can get cheaper credit. And um, that's how it is made to work. And then, of course, you know, people come and bring that mentality to crypto and fireworks ensue because there is no lender of last resort. And yet people are still conditioned to believe in the mythical milk-yielding cows. And so, I mean, I can't, I can't count the number of times over the past few years that people have told me, but it doesn't pay you any interest. And they say that as if like they, they're, they're coming up with something profound and they found a deep flaw with Bitcoin. Like how are you holding on to this thing when the number that you buy just stays the same? You know, you buy one Bitcoin and it stays one Bitcoin for a year. That's a broken money. It doesn't have magical cows making magical milk for you. My money, on the other hand, it gives me 7% per year. It's, it's the same thing we heard it in crypto world over the last year. We heard it about uh, Bitcoin-based products. We heard it about shitcoin-based products. I heard it in Lebanon. When I was in Lebanon, everybody used to laugh at me because, you know, why would you hold Bitcoin when it just doesn't appreciate? When, uh, sorry, when it only appreciate when it might appreciate because you say that it's scarce, but who knows, maybe one day they're going to make more. Why wouldn't you want to hold the Lebanese lira, which pays you six, seven, eight, and then uh, in the final days, I didn't know this, but apparently the banks in Lebanon were paying something like 14 and 15% interest rates on deposits. And that's why people weren't putting their money in Bitcoin, because <laughs> Bitcoin doesn't give you 14, 15% interest rates. And now, you know, as soon as interest rates begin to rise from the Federal Reserve to try and um, slow down the pace of inflation, all of these Ponzi's come crashing down. Everything, you know, whether it's the Luna shitcoin or the Lebanese Lira shitcoin, uh, all of these Ponzi's that are based on interest rates, all of them come crashing down. So the answer is more toxic Bitcoin maximalism. Yes. <laughs> Do not be afraid to be toxic. Yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, like you said, I think the quote, I don't, I don't really like the term toxic backseat because Vitalik created it, but I think everything that we have been preaching 
for the better part of a decade now, going back to the Nakamoto Institute and the pieces that they put out. Everybody go read, everyone's a scammer. Everybody's trying to get your Bitcoin. I mean, that piece has been uh, perfectly validated this year. And it's a lesson for some reason or another. Hundreds of thousands, millions of people have had to learn time and time again over the last 10 years. These, these speculative shitcoin bubbles pop up for some reason or another because people think that the mythical cow does exist and that there's going to be a next Bitcoin out there. But to wrap up this conversation, we talked about money printing at the federal level. The federal government here in the United States is racking up a lot of debt too. And one of our favorite fiat economist, Paul Krugman, he always likes to tell everybody, debt is just money we owe ourselves. And I would like you to expound on how insidious that idea is, particularly as fathers with children, and yeah. what, what that statement in and of itself means uh, in, under the context of him discounting the quality of life for our children in the future. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, he, he's, I don't, I don't know if he's the one who made it up, but I think it's probably not him because it's been part of the folklore of the uh, uh, fiction literature that they teach in uh, macroeconomics textbooks. And uh, the idea here is that, well, you know, we are a collective as a society. We're all together, we're like one big happy family, and we all owe it to ourselves. Like, you know, you, you think about the phrase, owe it to yourselves. Like, yeah, you owe it to yourself to study for the exam that you signed up for. You know, you took a course, so that you signed up for university, you owe it to yourself to go and study. You owe it to yourself to work out, you owe it to yourself to stay in shape, you owe it to yourself to um, maintain your relationship with your family. All the good things that you owe to yourself, you know, <laughs> they are, you, the, the phrase is used in the context of doing something good that you should do because you have a liability to yourself to improve yourself. That's not how it is used in that context <laughs> at all. In the context of public debt, it's just assuming that this is just, you know, debt is just something that we all owe to ourselves. You know, we all owe bonds, we all buy bonds. Obviously, you know, there's, um, th th these are written by, you know, mi upper middle class white people who um, think everybody is buying bonds and everybody's privileged and everybody in the world is just, you know, like an upper middle class American who has a portfolio with bonds. And so we all have bonds and we are all uh, buying the bonds and we're all paying for the bonds through taxes because we pay back for them. So we're making this virtuous circle of the economy run by, you know, taking money from one pocket and putting it in another pocket and then taking it back and, you know, but by running it through this magic, uh, this magic uh, Rube Goldberg machine that is the government bond market, we circulate uh, the money and that causes the economy as a machine to just crank into motion and then it starts working. And so we owe it to ourselves to get that machine to work. Like you just need to add some water into this machine so that it, the pump starts pumping out goods and services for us to make our lives better. But in reality, of course, bonds are not uh, owed to ourselves. There is no ourselves. There is we are made up of individuals, and individuals are born at different times and live through different times. That's a very key thing that Keynesians don't want you to ever notice. Um, not coincidentally, you know, Keynes was the sort of person who didn't worry about the long-term future. He was childless, and he didn't give a shit about what happens in the future. And, you know, his, his entire world philosophy can be summarized with a sentence that in the long run, you know, you, like you can follow his idiotic logic. All right, so we do this, we print the money and we do that. Well, then what happens with this? 
And then he comes up with another idiotic thing. Well, then we just move it through another Rube Goldberg machine and then we kick the can down the road and then ta-da. All right, we kick the can down the road there. Well, let's follow the logic. Well, then there's going to be more inflation there. So what are you going to do? And then you keep kicking the can down the road and you keep, and he keeps asking, you keep asking the question, he keeps answering with kicking the can down the road and then when you corner him, he said, well, you got him to the point where he's dead and he doesn't give a shit about what's going on anymore. So in the long run, we're all dead. And this is really ultimately what it comes down to. Like even the most idiotic, uh, fanatic Keynesian, even the most completely brainwashed Keynesian like Krugman will accept the long-term consequences. Will accept that yes, that e even in their idiotic models, which are just nonsense made up in order to arrive at the conclusion that yeah, we should be printing money, there is an inescapable conclusion that yeah, at, in the long run, there's going to be inflation. But we don't care about the long run. We're high time preference. The present is what matters. The short term is what matters. We need to focus on the present. And of course, you know, the, the, it's, it's not just that we're high time preference. The way that they like to sort of present this is, well, now we have people that are hurting now. You know, people are losing their jobs now. People are suffering now. We need to do something right now. And you know, it's, it's, it's like, well, I'm hungover right now, so I need a drink desperately right now, and I can't think and worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, and I can't worry about the liver, liver damage that it's going to cause me in the long run, because I'm suffering right now, and we need to alleviate the suffering right now. So it's all short-term focus, and because of that short-term focus that, that Keynesian economists do, they obfuscate the long-term consequence, and the long-term consequence is the destruction of the value of currency, and the destruction of the ability of people to save, and the destruction of people's savings, whether it's in saving accounts or in uh, bonds, or in any kind of uh, financial instrument that's uh, based on fiat. And so the people who pay the price are in the future. They are always, you know, we're today, we're paying the price for the future that Keynes predicted he was going to be dead for. So fortunately, he is dead. He did die, the one good thing that he did in his life. <laughs> but unfortunately for the rest of us, we're not dead. We're here. We have to suffer the consequences. So we are living in, and Hazlitt, a great economist, he said, we are today living in the future that Keynes warned us to not worry about because he was going to be dead in. So we're paying the price for it. And guess what? Our kids are going to live in the future that Krugman is telling us not to worry about. They're going to be the ones who are paying the price for it. Constant inflation and constant devaluation of savings, which, you know, he doesn't feel because, you know, he keeps getting paid more and more to repeat his idiotic propaganda because he doesn't function in a free market system that would, you know, reward him justly for the value that he creates. He functions as a mouthpiece for the money printer. So the long-run consequence of it is that the debt is not money that we owe to ourselves. The debt is money that is um, borrowed by current generations and paid off by future generations with interest. And that's really what it comes down to. You are born into debt. You're born into a world in which you have to pay for debt. And really, you know, remember our earlier discussion, the process of civilization is just the process of accumulating capital across generations, of each generation giving the next generation a better life. You know, if you look at places that have gone through a process of civilization over centuries, you know, what's been going on there? You look at how a family has moved over one generation to the other, each generation took what it had, spent its entire life working, handed over a tiny increase to the next generation, and then the next generation did the same thing. And you know, generation after generation, 
more capital was accumulated, a better house, a bigger land, a more productive farm, a better business, a business that expands, and each generation gets a better life than the one before it. So if, you, if you're inheriting capital from your ancestors and handing over more of that to your descendants, that's what civilization is. We're literally doing the exact opposite of that. You're inheriting debt from your ancestors and you're handing over bigger debt to your descendants. It's literally the opposite of civilization. This is what fiat is and this is why, you know, uh, this is the case that I make in my book, in the fiat standard, you know, the subtitle of the book is, it's the debt slavery alternative to human civilization. It's really, let's get rid of human civilization and just become debt slaves, all of us, because, you know, it'll help us get GDP up today and it'll make Paul Krugman happy. This is what it ultimately comes down to. It's not something that we all owe to ourselves. It's shackling our children into debt slavery into the future. Uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, I mean, this is why I decided to dedicate my life to Bitcoin, because I'm a father now. I do not want my children to grow up as debt slaves or my grandchildren. Hopefully, we can get to a point in the next few decades where where they're free from those shackles, they can accumulate capital and begin rebuilding civilization uh, in a beautiful and sound way. Hope so. That's, that's really what it comes down to. And I think it's, it's quite startling just how um, fertile Bitcoiners are. <laughs> you get into Bitcoin and you start popping out babies. It's no coincidence. I've made three since getting into Bitcoin. And uh, <laughs> I think that's basically par. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's because for, you see the possibility of saving for the future, and it's, it, it, it fixes everything in you because you know this. This is your prime biological directive, which fiat um, pounds out of you because it takes away from you the ability to think of the future, and then you can't invest in uh, something that is so long term and so nebulous as, you know, another human being, making another human being from scratch and then going through all of the bullshit that they go through and then having them grow up. It seems extremely t uh, tenuous thing to do when you're in fiat world. And yet when you switch to Bitcoin world and you start seeing that, you know, every 10 minutes there's a new block and there's only 21 million coins and they're always going to be there and nobody can fuck with Bitcoin, nobody can change the number of Bitcoins that are out there. It starts to give you a lot more certainty about the future and... Start popping out kids. Start popping out kids, yes. <laughs> I've got to catch up. I've only got two. Michael, are we doing Q&A or...? Uh, maybe a couple questions and then we'll get to the next question. Okay. Right. Take one or two questions. Okay. Um, I was curious what your perfect world for lending is. Like, do, we, do you want a world where there's no fractional reserve banking at all? And so every loan involves the exchange of, like, real money? I think so. I think, um, I, and this is, I, I, was, I was a lot more on the fence about this before I wrote the fiat standard and I looked into how fiat works. But, like, the key idea in the fiat standard is that uh, money is made through lending. So lending is creating money. So... Lending fiat is mining fiat, effectively. That's like the central idea of the fiat standard. So when you live in a monetary system that's based on debt, that's basically a global subsidy for debt. It's a global subsidy for everybody to get into debt 
and it's a tax on not getting into debt. And that's why everybody is in debt in the fiat world. Individuals, corporations, governments, everybody is up to their eyeballs in as much debt as they can possibly get. Because if you don't do that, then you're effectively still getting robbed by inflation. You're getting robbed by inflation and subsidizing other people's debt. So the best way to come out ahead is to get into as much debt as you can and you know, stay on the precipice of solvency but never fall into insolvency. That's basically how it is, which is why everybody's so insecure and why everybody's so high time preference because everybody's anxious all the time and why everybody's uh, depressed and why so many people need to take uh, medications for depression. I think you can't separate that. But I think that's also a big giant subsidy for lending. And I think if you take that out and instead you make a world in which money is hard, I, in the FIAS standard, I, I make an elaborate case for why I think in that kind of world, the only thing that you would get is what uh, Mises calls um, commodity credit. In other words, you'd have to actually put up money and you'd have to give it to somebody. And so th there won't be this idea of financial institutions making credit, which Mises calls circulation credit, which is, hey, I have a lending license and therefore I can make magic cows out of thin air. And be, you know, it's a good thing that the government gives me this lending license because it allows us to make more cows. Well, no, it does not. It's not making more cows, it's just um, making more claims on the existing cows. And in fact, it's making fewer cows because it's incentivizing a lot of people to stop taking care of cows and instead just wank around with uh, financial products instead of actually making something useful. So I think, I th I think, of, I, I think a hard money world, um, and the harder the money and um, you know, so you, a counter argument here would be that, well, there was credit under gold. True, but I think under gold, gold was um, not mobile. And so financial institutions had the ability to um, essentially treat their own credit as money because in order to move gold from A to B, you had to use gold credit. And so credit was money effectively even under a gold standard. But under a Bitcoin standard, money itself can move. So credit will have an increasingly... Uh, diminished role, in my opinion. Makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. a good answer. Thanks. I that uh, to actually follow up on that. Does that mean like equity financing is better than debt financing? Um, I think so. I, I I think we'd be in a world in which equity is the answer because I think um, you know uh, if there's no big incentive to have debt. And if money is hard, everybody's accumulating hard money. So on the one hand, everybody has an incentive to hold on to savings. And on the other hand, those savings are appreciating in real value. We get to a world in which credit is enormous, in which um, savings are enormously abundant. So that just means that the interest rate eventually continues to decline. And historically, if you look at humanity's 5,000 year history of interest rates, there's a book um, called um, uh, History of Interest Rate. Uh, by Homer and Scylla. I forget the exact title of the book. Um, five, something, it's 5,000 years of data on interest rates from across humanity. And you see that basically interest rates constantly declining. You know, as human civilization advances, as money gets harder, as our savings increase, our interest rates decline. And at the turn of the 19th century, interest rates had dropped to 2%. That was the lowest they'd ever been. And then humanity basically took a detour into insanity in the 20th century. And uh, we went into fiat money, and now interest rates are just uh, uh, government loyalty uh, scheme points, basically, like golden stars the government assigns. So they mean nothing anymore. 
But interest rates were declining, and that was with gold, which was you know a crappy Bitcoin. So I think with a proper Bitcoin that operates, and it's truly hard, then value saved continues to increase. So money becomes increasingly abundant, so interest rates continue to decline. Eventually, there's no way for them to go except for zero. And at that point, I think you know, um, securing money is going to be purely contingent on you being trustworthy. And so if it's contingent on you being trustworthy, why would I lend you at a very low interest rate? Why wouldn't I just take equity? There's no incentive to lend because we're not mining money. So therefore, I think equity lending becomes the uh, dominant form of financing. Uh, the author is uh, Homer and Scylla, two, two authors, and the book is um, A History of Interest Rates, something like that. There's maybe another word or two in the, in the book, but it's History of Interest Rates or something. Yeah. I think this is actually a very optimistic future because you think of the second and third order effects of that is really going to incentivize people to actually produce legitimate value so that people part with their sats for equity investments and, and things that they think are going to produce a return. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. That was fantastic. Thank you. Um, thank you guys.